Алекса, стоп. Это подкаст about how technology is changing our lives. With Robert Belgrave and Jim Bowles. Oh my goodness me, this is Alexa Stop. My name is Jim Bowes, and who the hell are you? Hello everybody, it's Robert Belgrave back for episode 14 and an episode all about AI. AI? What does that stand for, Rob? Artificial intelligence, for those that don't have their lives and careers consumed by this subject. You may remember, if you've been listening for some time, that our very first episode covered this subject and we thought it was about time we returned to see how things have progressed. Yeah, beware of the AI guru. Is that what it was, it was called? It was, and it was sort of a we sort of it was a chatbot episode, really, wasn't it? But we kind of segued into AI. So this time we thought we'd get a proper AI expert who is probably wincing as I say that because no one likes to claim they're an expert at anything. But I assure you that Lydia is definitely an expert and will be joining us in the studio later on this episode to talk about the amazing new business she's recently launched in the space and give us some of her thoughts on the subject. The funny thing is, the thing that I took from the first episode was I could definitely get away with calling myself an AI guru. And I've since done about three talks on AI with very limited information. But some of that information did come from a feed forward event and that helped me immensely. Speed forward being Lily's business. So yeah, um, we've got the we've got the source with us today. But as always, Jim, I think we should start with the news. Would you please do the honours? It's the news. It's the news. Oh yes, it is the news. Yes, indeed it is. And we're starting this month. It's been a little while since we last recorded. We've got lots to choose from, but we had to go with something in the spirit of our namesake, which is that Amazon have announced that they reckon by 2019 they will have a fully-fledged Alexa robot in our houses. It's exciting news, isn't it? It is exciting news. What do you think it's going to look like? I mean, when, when, what do you expect a robot to look like? Do you think it's going to be something with like a little motor and a sort of windy foot or, you know, because you've got um, a robot Hoover, haven't you? Yeah, I don't know. A robot I, vacuum cleaner. A ro- robot vacuum cleaner, yes. Other, other brands are available. I don't know. I think we can't help but make robots look a little bit like humans, right? So I guess it'll have a torso and things vaguely resembling limbs and maybe a sort of head. Do you think it might be like a Boston Dynamics one? I hope so. If it can open doors, that'd be amazing. Yeah, what would you get your robot to do? What, would be the, what are the top three tasks you would like done in your home, Rob? Uh, I'd probably have it signed for my Amazon deliveries. Can't you? So I've uh, done that. Yeah, <laughs> that's the dream, isn't it? For them, that's what they're doing. They're trying to get to a point where it can both order and sign for Amazon produce on your behalf. It sort of walks around the house, going, "Hmm, I think what they need is another echo in this room." Yeah, I mean, in the uh, the, the release I was reading, it was talking about how simply having an Alexa on wheels follow you around probably wasn't compelling enough, which is really what they want. They want the Alexa to be listening. F- to everything that's going on in every room all the time so they can learn about you and your behaviours and try and kind of integrate that voice control into everything that you do. But they've, they've kind of worked out that they have to do a bit more than that. So that's why they're kind of building out this robotic I'd assistant. Want, I'd like one that could high-five. Okay. And what, I just sort of find it uplifting. I find high-fiving quite an uplifting experience. But a great mental image if you just walk around like spontaneously high-fiving your robot. <laughs> Maybe a chest bump too. Okay. Those are probably the, my two most unmet needs in the home because um, Louise, my girlfriend, she's quite small, so for chest bumps, I'll just send her flying. Yeah, that wouldn't end well. And all your, all your aerobic workouts you've been doing, which we won't talk about too much today. But let's move on. Story number two. Story number two is a good news story. After all, this podcast is all about how technology is changing people's lives. What I love about this story is it's a callback, Rob. It is a callback. So some of you may remember that I revealed the results of a 23andMe DNA test live on the air, which was invigorating terrifying a little bit terrifying for you i think you were slightly worried you were gonna find out something you know it could have been really bad and i I 
I don't know, my, uh, my artistic integrity, I would have still released it. So it felt like a proper reveal. Of course, one of the things that we found out on that episode was that we uh, understood something that could be wrong with you completely incorrectly. So we gave you a muscle-wasting disease on the episode. We did, and then uh, we do love a correction. Feel free to send in any corrections you like uh, after this episode. The correction from that episode was that macular degeneration actually means you might go blind, not that you might lose the use of your muscles. So uh, I then subsequently went and learnt about this thing, in my, this mutation in my DNA that I was more susceptible to. But this story is a good news story, which is that British physicians have successfully used stem cells to treat two cases of macular degeneration, degeneration rather successfully for the first time ever, which is a massive breakthrough. And I think good news for you, great news for me, and also great news for all people suffering from all kinds of different ailments. And I think a pretty good marker of what's to come. Yeah, and I think generally, uh, lots of research related to stem cell therapy seems to be starting to give results. Yeah, um, I read a story about MS and stem cells uh, recently. So it looks like, you know, um, healthcare is going to progress at an amazing rate uh, over the next few years. Absolutely. And, um, you know, quick shout out to a, a dear friend of the podcast, Tim Polder's dad, known as Older Polder, affectionately, is suffering from a condition, reasonably severe condition at the moment. And as an alternative to needing a bone marrow transplant, they've just told him that they can use his own stem cells instead, which I think is massive. Huge, yeah. Uh, it's not a, not a pleasant procedure and i believe this has better chances of success as well so great well, news let's hope that works out and 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 does work uh, one thing i wanted to talk about now rob moving on to a new news story was um i've heard a rumor that you are a bit of a fan of the flat earth view of the world i'm not sure where you heard that rumor i think the whole thing is frankly ridiculous however he doesn't I, he's lying i i do i did rather enjoy the story about Mad Mike Hughes, the 61-year-old limo driver from California, who is both a devout flat earther and an all-round nutter amateur rocket scientist. What I love about him is his haircut, if I'm honest. He's just got that ever-so-slightly mullety, spiky... He looks a bit like uh, a WCW wrestler from the mid-90s. Business up front, party out back. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Um, But also, he put himself in a rocket that he made for 14 grand. Yeah, a steam-powered rocket. So this guy was determined to prove decades of scientific research to be incorrect and launch himself to an altitude sufficient that he could prove once and for all that the earth was indeed flat yeah i mean it's ridiculous this is a ridiculous story (laughs) the fact he's alive is ridiculous the fact he not only got off the ground in a homemade steam-powered rocket but landed the thing without dying is the true true miracle here landed is a bit strong it fell to earth he, he did some damage to his back, but apparently he's okay. And uh, it was scheduled for, for launch in November. But given that it was kind of illegal and suicidal, apparently it kept getting pushed back. But he got round to doing it uh, about a month ago. Um, unfortunately, however, he didn't reach the altitude that would have been required to uh, actually disprove the, uh, the spherical nature of the Earth. So. Yeah, he was flying 33,000 feet lower than the average aeroplane. <laughs> yeah, yes, he was. But um, you know what, Mike? Good job. Good job, Mike. We we enjoyed the story all the same. And so our fourth and final story for this month is about a very intelligent young gentleman from MIT who has created a real like sci-fi headset thing. Have you seen this guy? He was in the news today. I have not seen this, Rob. Okay. Tell me what you're talking about. So if you've read any sort of science fiction, you might have heard of this idea of sub-vocalization, which is the idea that when you think a word... You, your muscles, the, the kind of muscles in your jaw and in your head, ultimately, kind of form the word, even if you don't say it. Rob, what word am I thinking? <laughs> I was going to swear. Um, I, I don't know, Jim. 
Well, I guess you can't read this stuff. <laughs> uh, that's what we learned. Uh, I was going to say chicken because I know that you're you're obsessed by your protein diet at the moment. But I'm trying to stay off your your ridiculous uh, personal activities. Back on the it MO- was it, it was dog by the way <laughs> it was dog. So, so I suppose you know m- maybe there's some crossover there somewhere. It was an animal at least. So you know your mind reading skills are not too terrible. Close enough. Hopefully not one you would eat. But um, but high in protein, I'm sure. Back on MIT. So this guy has created this kind of strange headset thing that does. I guess essentially thought to text so he can wear this headset and sub vocalize a word so in your case dog you know and then capture that on his phone or on a computer and and pipe it into some software and there was an interview that actually came out today where he's being interviewed and being asked incredibly difficult questions and he's googling the answers to the questions using this technique so in the room he's just sitting there quietly looking a bit weird with his headset thing on and then the answer's being piped into his ear through uh, text-to-speech from the computer, and then he's answering the questions. I mean, think of the opportunities for cheating in exams. It's impressive. I think also, though, you can see how augmented reality could be then updated to use this technology so you could see what people were thinking by looking at them. It's it's insane. And I think it closes quite a few interesting loops about a lot of those different opportunities like VR and AR and stuff like that. But um, one of the demos in the video is him walking around a supermarket... And as he picks things up off the shelf, adding the price of the thing he's picked up to a kind of tally. So, you know, he picks up a sandwich and it's $6 and he just sub-vocalizes that $6. And then at the end, he can ask sub-vocally what the total is and the computer can say, oh, you've got $22 on your bill, right? So I don't know if I like to-do list stuff and it'd be amazing. I mean, I personally like my Moleskine notebook for a to-do list, but, you know, call me old-fashioned. Well, um, you're old-fashioned, apparently. (laughs) Okay, I'll take it, I'll uh, take it. And, and maybe that's a good moment to talk about, I don't know, let's mix the order up a bit. Maybe we should talk about some tech we'd like to bring back, seeing as we're talking about being old-fashioned. Well, I've heard a, a rumour that you've got a bit of Sonic in your veins. I do indeed, and that is a Sega reference, in case anyone was wondering. NES, the uh, Nintendo Entertainment System, recently released a SNES Mini, which yeah. sold out last Christmas, was a massive hit. So this is one for the gamers. GoldenEye was really the best game on SNES. It was on the N64, but close enough. Was, was that? Well, did they not backwards make it? I feel like we've done this on the podcast before. Yeah, I think we probably so. That's have. a callback. Jim getting the Jim getting the platform of Goldeneye wrong is a callback. The thing is, like, I think I jumped from from NES to to N sixty four. I don't think I ever had a SNES, so I've got no idea what the games were on that. There we go. Mario Kart was that on it? That was that, that was, was on all of them. That was on all the. That's that's why <laughs> I said that wrong. Good job. <laughs> so Sega want a piece of that action, and they're releasing the Mega Drive Mini for uh, for those Sega fans out there, so you can fulfil your uh, Sonic cravings that you might have. I think I'd want a full-size one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it'd probably be better. The, so, I don't know, what trivia can I give you on Sega? The controller had three buttons. Do you remember that? It was unusual. I don't remember that. No? I had a Master System, which was the one before the Mega Drive. It was? Um, which had... Uh, Shinobi. Alex Kid in Miracle World as the pre-installed game. And then they, then they made the Game Gear, which was actually just a Master System in a handheld. What, what, ahead of its time. A mini Master System. It was like a... It was like a Game Boy. It was like a colour Game Boy. So no, I remember it because you yeah. could get a TV tuner that slotted into it and watch TV on it. God, all of that tech looks pretty ghetto now. And I think there's a link there to something that we're going to talk about in a minute. Yes, indeed there is. And maybe it's time for our story from our CTO. Yeah, did you see what we did there? I do. I was a bit slow. God, it's been a while since we recorded, isn't it? And it's, tell it's, tell it's us obvious. a story from your CTO, Rob. I'll do that. So this month, uh, a story from my CTO. Well, he's been busy sorting his house out and doing a bit of spring cleaning as one does at this time of year. And what that means is he's been clearing out his shed. And he said to me in a completely, you know, seemingly unaware of the irony of this statement, 
I was cleaning out my shed, and all I had in there was bespoke antennas. I mean, that's pretty weird, isn't it? Yeah. He said, you wouldn't believe how many custom-made antennas I had in my shed. But we do have previously told the story of how he's, like, travelled in a car to places with no internet where he's made custom-made antennas for the purposes of the journey so he has backup internet at all times. Well, maybe that was one of the many that was in there. But The, um, the many circumstances in which he feels he needs an antenna. If any of you would like a custom-made antenna, please do get in contact with us on Twitter, Alexa underscore stop, or send me a message and I will forward it to the man himself. How many custom-made antennas have you got, Rob? I think it's probably a zero, Jim. How about you? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm antenna-less. Antenna-less. Yeah, I don't have a shed either. No, me either. The joys of London living. In London, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, let's talk about something from the Hype Curve, shall we, before we get our guest in. It's from the Hype Curve. Yes, it's from the Hype Curve. And this month, we had to talk about AI. AI seems to be cresting to the very height of... The Gartner cycle? Is I mean, it the Gartner cycle? I identify it's the, it as the, the hype cycle. I mean, a few people have got different versions of it, but it's, yeah, mostly the Gartner one, isn't it? Um, so the thing about getting to the top of the hype cycle is that there is only one way from there for quite some time. The trough of disillusionment. The trough of, di- yeah. So we'll talk about that uh, with our guests shortly. Yeah. If but, there's a trough coming. But in terms of AI, I mean, what could we say? It's, you know, I, I honestly thought when we started the pod, you know, 18 months ago, that that actually was PKI. And it seemed at that point like there was it's kind of furor around the subject globally. But it definitely has amplified from there. And, you know, coming having just come back from South by Southwest together, I'd say that one of the key trends and themes that was being discussed there was AI. And ethics has come into it a lot more recently. Yeah, I guess taking it a step further beyond the technology and now th- actually thinking about how we can do something meaningful with it and how it's arriving in our in our lives. And obviously, you know, I think the data element is at the core of that. It's been very divisive recently. And, and yeah, it seems like we're starting to see this technology turn up in places that's actually impacting us. It's not just theory anymore or science fiction. And so we're still at that kind of peak of inflated expectations and everyone's really excited about it and i personally as a techie always look forward to the plummet into the trough because what that means is the plateau is coming right when it actually becomes meaningful usable well integrated technology and of course that's the start of the opportunity for technologists because you you can then start to get practical in how you're going to apply this stuff and you you then people start buying it and the adoption comes and so it kind of gets cool well, you can get on with actually building the technology. I think the problem with stuff when it's at this sort of peak of hype is there's a lot of media attention and everyone's really excited. And like, if you do an event on the subject, it's always oversubscribed. But actually, most people don't really understand it. You know, blockchain is definitely having this problem at the moment. And I can't wait for it to kind of collapse off the other side because I think then actually when these technologies start to change the uh, world. Hang on, a moment. Let's, let's just let's back up a minute there. Is there a collapse coming in blockchain and, and therefore cryptocurrencies, Rob? Well, some people would say that's what's just happened over the last four months. But No, over the last month, it's been back up, hasn't it? <laughs> um, three weeks. But not to split <laughs> Come hairs. On. Not to split hairs. <laughs> You're such a crypto pedant. <laughs> what's a couple of billion dollars between friends? Um, well, well, I mean, my investment's not that big, Rob. Right, it's time to invite our guest Lydia to join us in the studio. So we'll be back shortly after this light jazz jingle you know and love to talk all things AI, the work she's doing with her new business feed forward, and our music plays a part in that. Quick, get your double bass, Rob. (laughs) 
And so we're back in the studio with our special guest, Lydia Gregory. And Lydia is the co-founder of Feed Forward, a London-based artificial intelligence consultancy. Thanks so much, Rob. Thanks for having me in. You're more than welcome. It sounds cool. And I understand that you're trying to kind of bring together the world of business and academia. Yeah, it kind of, it sprung out of, so my business partner is a mathematician and he's very active in the academic research community. And I've always spent my life customer side and there just seems to be this massive gulf between the two. Um, So we set it up, our kind of philosophy is all about improving understanding on both sides. So improving the understanding of what what businesses need and translating that back and then just improving the understanding about what AI is and what it can do. So it's all about getting getting different people in the same room and doing cool stuff. Which, is, as we've been debating off mic, is something that can often be quite challenging and maybe we'll unpack that. But I think there's a few other bits of your history that I'm really interested in. And we, so we met talking about AI on a Beamer Roadshow event up in Manchester. And um, I, I was impressed by how you articulated some of the history behind it. But before we get into that, you studied music at Oxford and now you're working in the technology <laughs> field, which is a really interesting journey. Maybe you could talk a bit about that and how you kind of clearly have a love of music, how you kind of came to that and then why you went on to work in the field you do now. Yeah, cool. So yes, my, my CV, how does it make sense? Yeah, so I studied music originally and that is my my first love in the creative world. But I actually immediately after university, which now sadly was a little while ago, went into tech. So I spent a few years working as a technology consultant at Accenture, um, where I worked on various different projects. But the main one was in a big data migration in banking. And for me, that was a, yeah, it was a conscious choice at the time. I think I thought I knew I didn't want to be kind of pigeonholed into music. I wanted to hopefully in the end, find a way to bring music back into my life in a professional sense. But I felt like all the opportunities in the future, it was going to be tech. And I wanted to know more about that. So Accenture was an amazing grounding. So since then, I basically worked at the kind of intersection of music, business and technology. So after Accenture, I ended up setting up an independent uh, auction house for musical instruments. And then left that to work in artificial intelligence and music. And I spent the last few years doing that, which is where I met my business partner. And then we set up Feed Forward in January. And I just think it'd be good to like just focus in on the moment where you decide to start a business. <laughs> so so t- tell us about the, the moment in the conversation that made you be like... Just do it. Uh, well, it happened over a drink, as I think all good businesses should This is the start, start of many great stories. <laughs> yeah. Um, we actually just got chatting. So yeah, we, we used to work together. And as I said, we were in very, very different roles. Uh, so he was heading up the, the research team. And I was on the, the customer and growth side of things. And we were actually talking about our kind of philosophy behind how we wanted to run a business. And actually, we were very aligned on that. And we really saw that especially with AI, you do, you need this, you need this collaboration between very different types of people, because it's not possible for one person to say they know AI. Like, you know, yeah, my business partner, he knows the details. If you want to know about the algorithms, go to him. But if you want to know about the applications and actually what the customer's looking for, come to me. And then there's a whole different bunch of people we also need in the room. And we felt like we really wanted to create an atmosphere where that was possible, because we think that actually the way decisions are made in the future perhaps will change because I think we've had this old model of sort of a single CEO who typically was this sort of an you know, alpha character who had a view across the whole company. And actually, I'm, I'm not sure that's necessarily going to work 
in the long term and actually you need more kind of orchestrators you need people who can bring people together and make stuff happen so really it was a discussion about that kind of philosophy behind business and about how we wanted a cool music space to in the middle of our business for people to do cool creative things in so we we kind of took it from there and I think I had been finding having worked in technology at, at Accenture and also talking to a lot of clients in this this AI music world that there was um there was a need for bespoke solutions essentially so we thought if we set up on our own we can go into businesses and find out what they're talking about at the moment and help to kind of educate on where where AI can help them today because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding particularly where there are off-the-shelf solutions and they do certain things very well but because AI has been dressed up as a kind of sentient being by lots of media yeah yep yeah. and that it drives me nuts hype curve, uh, hype curve exactly but it's really unhelpful because it means totally. you, you can't have business conversations you want to get on with the next phase right which is actually making it relevant making people it relevant. And, and building stuff people are actually going to use exactly so we kind of our approach is we go in and talk about actually just find out about their business what kind of data they've got where they've got problems and then from that we can actually identify what might be possible but for instance we had a, a client we were speaking to in january and they came to us. It was actually, yeah, it was, it was a product owner came to us because uh, someone else in their business had tried IBM Watson for a particular uh, use case and it, it hadn't been right because that wasn't what IBM Watson was intended for. Yeah. So then someone senior in their organization had said, well, machine learning doesn't work. You're like, right. Binary choice. Yeah, yes. and I suppose yeah, particularly with like Watson, it's, it's a very specific thing. It's got 29 separate APIs that are exactly. built around questions and answers. Is that an AI isn't still narrow to your point? You know, people have this perception that we're in, we're already at broad AI where there's this like comprehensive intelligence of all these different things. And actually all these different systems are designed for very, very narrow tasks and you've exactly. got to choose the right one for the job. Exactly. And like you'd never, like with web design, you'd never say, oh, if somebody else has got a website, then I can just, you, you, it's not off the shelf. You need to build things bespoke. So we uh, we actually try not to use the word AI. We do call ourselves an AI consultancy because that, well, it's this constant tension between what the market wants sure. you to say. You kind of have to, I guess. You have to. Yeah. But we try and use machine learning. But even the word learning is kind of problematic. So again, it implies some kind of sentience. And, you know, yeah. So it's a constant battle. So there's a couple of things that, about this, because I guess some of the media stuff is the robots are coming. And I've had a bit of a look at some of the tech in that space. And most of it's relatively unimpressive at the moment. Uh, it's sort of, uh, there's basically things where you record scripts or map processes that just do the job of a human. And... The, then the machine learning is the next layer to get added to that that should make it better. Um, so I guess what what are the sort of types of problems that you're actually solving and how are you implementing them? Well, just first of all, on that robotics piece, it's interesting because um, we actually had this complaint after our last event that it wasn't about robots as in physical robots. Mm. And I think there's, uh, yeah, people sometimes get kind of confused as to what robots, so robotics, true. automation, AI. It gets conflated. It gets it? so conflated. Yeah, yeah. To, be, to be fair, um, I went to meet a robotic process automation company and, and I was sort of disappointed they didn't even have one robot. Yeah, exactly. Well, first of all, on, on, on robotic process automation, that's actually what we're finding in, in the corporate space. That's what people have been buying so there's been various hype curves i think you'll remember the cloud hype curve Very and essentially well. everyone talks about it and then they start buying it uh, and then there was automation and then people are now buying robotic process automation so some examples of those type of solutions uh, will be for instance in a bank if you call up and need to change your 
home address, then somebody might have to type that into five different systems because banks always have loads of legacy systems. So actually the RPA system essentially just means the person can type it into one interface and then it repeats that into those five systems. Like that actually, it's really, really solid, really practical. And that's the type of solution that people have been buying from companies like UiPath and Automation Anywhere. But where we're seeing the kind of opportunity next, and some of them are already looking at putting in intelligent layers is actually when you get exceptions thrown up from that so for instance it's not going to handle everything and there's actually some use cases at the moment where you're getting loads and loads of exceptions thrown up because there isn't a process within the rpa um, system to deal with whatever use case they've got and actually that's where machine learning can come in uh, and help yeah, my business partner um, uh, is in Sydney and uh, he's, he's just done a, a diploma in AI and he's working in a business that, that has lots of people correcting the errors of the automation. Uh, yeah. And maybe the error rate at the moment is much higher than the public perception of the company <laughs> in question. Yes, yes, I can imagine. But I'm sure it's improving all the while. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I have seen some of that, that software, actually, that's got natural language processing layered in on top. So that on, in your sort of change of address example, it would be able to receive the email and work out that it's a change of address and then do some of the typing. So you can see the path of improvement in these tools. And I think the really actually the exciting thing about RPA is that a lot of the automation can be done in the UI. So you stop. You don't need a programmer to be coming up with those rules and implementing them. You can actually yeah. have this, the service provider, whoever they are, who knows that process, they can automate it themselves. Yeah. Um, but basically self-service, right? A lot of that stuff. Being, you give someone the right tools and they can train the tools to do the job. Exactly. And, yeah. and I've certainly, you know, if you, I think your banking example is really good because actually most of the UK banks have tens of thousands of back office staff doing relatively straightforward tasks. So it, you, you can really see with that technology how it is going to change the world of work over the next five years or, or, or however yeah. long. Where do you sit on the pessimism versus optimism question when it comes to, oh my God, all of our jobs are going to get taken? Well... I'm an optimist, but that's not to say that things won't change. And I think, for instance, taking a music example, in the 70s when drum machines came out, everyone was saying that all the drummers were going to die out. And we still have drummers. Drum machines are very useful. And actually, they've opened up a whole new way of humans being creative. So you've got a whole lot of people now who are kind of bedroom producers creating music. That literally didn't exist. Um, the same with even if you go back to recording 100 years ago. Now music is opened up to a whole lot more people. But yes, it has changed things. But people still go to concerts. So I think with AI, it, it will change things. And I think there will be changes in the types of jobs that are available in the future. But I don't, I'm not pessimistic about that. Uh, for instance, actually, one, one example uh, I heard at a talk last year was about the legal profession. Right. So, and they were saying the, the impact is actually going to be on the paralegals. So apparently, the amount of paralegals has gone up hugely since, basically since technology, because now we're just producing so much more documentation that you need these paralegals to go through it and surface things that then the lawyers assess. Yeah. Pairing bundles and stuff is just so much, it's a huge job now compared to what it was before. Exactly. And that is being done by, by humans. So that is a role that in itself has come about more recently. So perhaps that will become less necessary. I think the question that worries people is the human impact of that. And I, I yeah. don't have the answers to that. The displacement side, Exactly. Right? Yeah. But there have been so many changes in the past. I think... People will employ this technology 
where there are opportunities and whether opportunities that then open up other possibilities for people to do more creative tasks or tasks requiring more specialism. And the interesting thing about the paralegal example is, of course, that, you know, in, in many cases, the legal profession can be a bit old fashioned. And um, the paralegal is a job that you're sort of almost done as earning your stripes. So you're normally held at the paralegal level for longer than you really need to be so that you get a training contract at a later stage. So it, it, what it does is it challenges the business model of law in a bigger way actually yeah well and this is where I would not claim to be an economist or someone who has studied this in depth but I I don't know what the impact will be on things such as where you have companies that have a kind of pyramid structure and you have a lot of people at the bottom and then kind of it works its way up I I don't know whether that will change in the future if there will be fewer of those entry-level jobs I don't know and similarly I think there probably is a concern that is is valid and I know many people have been vocal about about the fact that if you can do work that is worth a lot so generates a lot of revenue with fewer people what what effect does that have on society and i think those are really yeah. valid questions concentration I, of wealth co- and that whole concern and exactly you know, one person could own a fleet of ai driven robots and achieve huge revenue and not need a workforce and then therefore not be paying national insurance for those people exactly the thing i think i would say um is that i don't think it'll necessarily be a one for one and again this comes back to the word AI and this idea that each AI is a single thing in itself I don't think that many people will get a call saying sorry your job has gone it's been taken over by a robot no it happens gradually exactly it'll happen gradually it'll just be you know perhaps this team doesn't need to exist anymore or this team needs to work with this type of technology it'll be a change but I don't think people will be aware that they are being replaced by a robot but a, a bot could make that call using the AWS a, a poly uh, API. Uh, and that, so you wouldn't need a human to even do the vocalization and you, of that. And you, and you might not even know. I mean, something that we saw at South By was a really amazing speaker called Nell Watson talk about this idea that she forecasts there will be businesses that are set up by AI in the future and will employ humans. So the reverse might be true. And the question she sort of supposed to the audience, which I thought was great and I'm going to use, was how would you feel about being employed by an AI? Like if you were offered a job to work for a company that was founded and run, to your, to your point about what the CEOs of the future might look like, well, they might be, they might be the computers, right? So um, change is coming. And I think, it's, like you said, it's very, very dangerous to forecast what it might look like, but it, it probably actually goes a lot further than people realise. So I don't know if you've read Max Tegmark's book. That sounds very similar. So he goes through all the all the kind of scenarios of what might happen if this super AI exists. And and one of them, actually one of them is, is very utopian. And you have this AI that essentially creates balance by creating all these companies, employing all these people. And then obviously there's the dystopian versions as well. Right. But um, yeah, who knows? Let's hope it's the positive version, right? Let's uh, let's hope that they there's some wonderful creation of jobs that give people purpose and identity. Because I think, for me, that's the biggest challenge is right now, people identify as what they do professionally. If we met for the first time and I asked you what you do, you'd say, I'm doing some pioneering work in the world of AI, for example. And I would say I'm running an amazing infrastructure company that helps deliver fantastic technology for great brands. We identify as our professions. And I think that it'll be really interesting for me to see how that changes in the future if the profession is no longer the thing that we live for or the thing we identify as and actually it 
becomes a kind of smaller, less meaningful part of our lives as yeah, a result no, of some of these changes. I mean, this speaks to some trends and things that are going on that are not just solely to do with technology and not solely to do with AI, but are highly related to them. And, you know, we talked to, uh, in our South by Southwest talk about how we think that consumerism is over, uh, or well, maybe I'd, we think. On There's the a way school of thought. To being over. Um, we're getting too political. We got complaints about that before, Rob. But, you know, this sort of potentially sort of accelerates trends that are perhaps happening anyway, because it, it brings to the surface trends and, and, and features of society by accelerating them. So one area I know you're really interested in is personalization. Maybe you could talk a bit about that. Yeah, so we're seeing some really interesting things in the world of media and entertainment and obviously advertising as well around personalization. So that's personalization of the content itself, but then also personalization of the user experience. So on the user experience, you're seeing... There's been so many disruptions. The, the big one, for instance, being Blockbuster Video. Who remembers Blockbuster Video? Uh-huh. Good old Blockbuster. Good old Blockbuster. There, with HMV somewhere. <laughs> yeah. And all you know, a single pint. Good for a slide deck when you need an example. Yeah. Exactly. So apparently their most profitable year was the year before they went under. Yeah. So things change quickly. But obviously with disruptors like Netflix, it's now it's it's all about the trying to capture the user's attention. And so therefore having a great user experience is really important. And as we all know, we are all getting less patient to find what we want. Actually, a lot of Netflix's success is to do with how they surface content to you. I mean, I understand they spend a huge amount of time and money on. Huge amount of time. And apparently I uh, found one paper which claims that it saves them a billion dollars a year. But the way they do it, it's fascinating. They essentially break down their genres into around 80,000 sub-genres. Yes. Programmatically, I assume. Um, well, so apparently it's actually, it's manually, each piece of content is watched and each elements of it are graded. Uh, so for instance, you it might be an action film, but it might have an action rating of three and a romance rating of five. And it means then with all the kind of data that they know about you, because you log in with your profile, they then know that actually, if you like action films, you like them with a certain action rating, a certain romance rating, all this kind of thing. And it's that is encoded in their metadata and of course that's a much better reflection of reality right because yeah. I, you know i love a bit of true crime but i don't like hammy old footage and just shots of piece to camera from like mid 80s america i'd have a slight preference for a sort of well-constructed story with a documentary maker involved and and so you know the neat there's the facets of what we find entertaining are not as simple as horror or crime exactly and that's where actually machine learning can just deliver things that a human built system or rule based system just couldn't do because it can deal with things on that type of scale so that you really get to understand exactly what it is that that somebody is searching for um, and this is similar to kind of the idea of, of behind Spotify like we all know yeah. Spotify playlists are amazing and actually if you just think about the amount of tracks they have on there it's enormous and how do you work out what track is is similar to another track and machine learning enables that scale and uh, we're seeing that world of personalization is becoming important. It's funny in something like motion content or film, because um, so on Spotify, I think I give them far more signals for my intention. So if I'm 20 seconds into a song that I'm not enjoying, I will stop listening to it. But once I'm 30 minutes into a film, I'll almost certainly finish it. Yeah, that's um, interesting. Because that's a that's a behaviour of mine that exists outside of, I, I don't like not knowing the end of something, even if I'm not enjoying it. Um, but or with music, I can deal with it. With a film, I'm like, I'm in. But the flip side is the Netflix problem, which I think a lot of people suffer from, is almost too much choice because because the commitment with you know motion content, as you say, is much hi- is much higher. You're because when you watch a film, you're committing to a much longer period of time. 
viewing something rather than listening to a three minute track i think you're therefore much more picky about what you'll select and so the personalization element whereas with spotify like i don't know about you guys i get served up my daily playlist it's fantastic as you say lady like it's one of the best examples of ai i can i can give anybody is how good and how accurate that is but ultimately i'll just stick it on and do some work and it just kind of plays through and like you say jim you know you might skip a track here and there but you basically just kind of let it go i skipped the saturdays yesterday I'm surprised by that. You love your cheesy pop. Why the Saturdays? It just wasn't a very good song. What I don't even remember which one it, it was. was. It was Monday, maybe. Yeah. 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 It was. It could have been Monday. It could have been on a Monday. That I was. mean, there were other tunes in there. You know, Surely the AI could have worked that out. <laughs> but um, whereas with a film, I don't know. I like with, with And I, I think as Netflix's algorithms got better, this feels like it's become less of a problem. Like there was this period with Netflix a year or two ago where you would just endlessly scroll through content. And I think they've managed to refine that, both in terms of interface design, but also the personalization that they're doing. So it feels like it's the sort of time till you start watching something come down a bit. I don't know about you guys. And that's the thing. It should be intuitive. Like actually this whole personalization of user experience, you, should, you shouldn't you should notice it. it. You should notice it because you're not annoyed and frustrated. It's, it's interesting as this stuff starts to come to fruition, isn't it? Because I think I probably worked on my first personalization project over a decade ago. Um, and basically... It was pretty simplistic then. And also people in businesses just couldn't understand it. So nearly all of the first several personalization projects I worked on never truly went live because people just couldn't get their head around what they needed to do to fuel it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and, it, and it's only been since we've people have been collecting much more data that this is becoming a reality. One thing I wanted to say is the words that we're seeing a lot with brands and agencies beginning to use around these personalization systems because of the fear partly now recently by Cambridge Analytica, but before all that kind of scandal kicked off, there's always been this kind of fear that actually you're just being sold to the whole time. So I think in these type of services where actually the recommendations are embedded in a a service that is being provided to you that you are paying for, or it's not just based upon advertising revenue, people are referring to it as kind of concierge services, that idea that actually it's there to serve you uh, rather than just selling you stuff the whole time. And people are smart, right? I think it's okay from a user experience point of view to put in some assistance from the consumer. So if you allow them to send back a signal that says, you've got this wrong, because people are like becoming aware that actually it's a machine learning process that's, that's serving them some of the stuff. Exactly. Well, and actually, so this is something we've been trying to address at, at Feed Forward. As I mentioned, first love, music, audio, love yeah. that world. And we very much feel that creative AI, it shouldn't be, we shouldn't be trying to be replacing the human creative process. And actually, it's all about for us creating tools that support that creative process. So they should be useful, uh, perhaps automate some things that humans find boring. Augmentation. Augmentation. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so we actually were looking at this whole thing around search because particularly with audio, um, and, and music, for instance, in like a stock audio library. So so much video is being created. I don't even know what the current stats are. Loads. Yeah. and uh, More than any of us could ever watch in our lifetime. Exactly. The stat I used to use about two years ago was it was 600 hours a minute is uploaded to YouTube. Yeah. But yeah, that's now probably way out. Uh, but all of that, most of the time, pe- people are looking for, for music for it. And, and same with adverts and films. And actually, when you're trying to find the right track... People start with kind of using mood words or genre words. You'll say, I want a track that reminds me of this piece of music or sounds like this. And there's a kind of semantic gap between the words that are used and actually the audio itself. So either you've got this problem of people going through and tagging everything and that takes ages. 
So actually what we've done is created the system, which we're, we're calling Figaro, and it creates this link between the, the metadata in a system, whether that's the usage history or tags that people have already applied in their, in their system, um, and the audio content itself. So we've actually got machine learning going on in two different places. And we create a connection between the two of them. And what that enables us to do is every time a new track comes into the system, you don't need to tag it. Essentially, we'll automatically predict which tag should apply. And we also, every time someone searches on some search term saying, like, I want a happy track that whatever, and they choose to download something, we know that that search term was associated with that. And over time, we can hopefully just remove that gap between when you say you want a certain type of track, what you actually mean by that. And we can start to get to know you and how you use words. And it's all about just, yeah, reducing that friction. We, we've started with music because, as I say, that's what we what we love. But there's, I think that kind of principle is going to apply in many areas of life as we're all just moving so quickly and we want mm. things to arrive with us very quickly and and so i mean that's another great example of, of the training element of these systems so i think you know in the context of something like spotify i think pe- people as you say jim are becoming a bit more savvy about how these systems work even if they don't necessarily ne- understand the algorithm and they don't need to i think people on spotify make an effort to thumbs up and thumbs down songs because they know i certainly do because since they l- released the incredibly good daily playlist automated playlist recommendations i now bother to rate tracks before i wouldn't bother i don't care like well, i'm not going to help them figure out what's good in their music library now it actually makes a meaningful difference to me and my experience i'm happy to participate i'm doing their job for them right i'm helping them train their system and it's the same thing with what you're doing you're catching search terms you're then using that to you know and that correlation to the result to then feed the machine learning algorithm by the sounds of it which then increases the you know accuracy for future searches so it's it becomes this sort of self-populating thing and you can see the power of how that could become immersive you know that you could take a a music an immersive museum experience that uses that api to customize your experience based on your music taste I think it's also fair to say that actually not all of the feedback you give has to be so explicit. Like actually the mm. feedback these systems can take are sometimes implicit in what you're what you're doing and how you're behaving. And I think this again, like I saw um, one prediction which said with Internet of Things, there's going to be 50 to 100 billion devices online by 2020. And all of those are essentially generating data streams all the time, whether that's with sensors or your behavior history. And all of that is going to enable us to become all these systems to become more context aware and essentially just work out at any given moment what you're what you're likely to be wanting from that but i think that's where probably we should probably can't avoid the whole recent scandals i think it's what what actually i think will matter to to users more is actually therefore assessing whether they believe the mission statements and the ethics of the companies that sit behind them because the the tech is going to be more sophisticated and you might find that it's not hugely different the approach from between a company that you like and a company that you think is doing something that you disagree with but I think yeah I think companies are going to have to really be clear on what they stand for Um, and I think they should be I think that's how it should be. And on that point, I mean, let's let's talk briefly about the ethics because I think it's a very pertinent subject at the moment in the the context of the wider conversation about AI. As you say, Cambridge Analytica, the whole Facebook thing. What guidance would you give our listeners from your perspective on this very subject? I mean, how how do you act with your own data? How do you feel about it? How would you, you know, what do you tell your mum, right, if she asks you, should I worry about this stuff? Well, yeah, my mum doesn't use Facebook, which I've always ridiculed her for. But clearly now maybe she's onto something. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, advice, it's tricky, isn't it? I think the first thing I would say actually is 
and I don't know what the answer is, I don't know how to address this, but in the media, I, I really do have a problem with how many articles, basically every article that has some kind of humanoid robot associated with an AI, because I think it, it makes it actually hard. I, th- I think in general, we need a greater level of understanding of the tech that sits behind it from, from everyone. It doesn't need to be an understanding of the algorithms, but just an understanding of the kind of basic components. Yeah. And I think that is on the people who are actually developing it to communicate it better. The stock photography of the Terminator needs to go is not it's not helping but also i think there's lots of articles for instance about the recent cambridge analytica and facebook scandal they were very emotive and it was all about kind of worrying about your data and what you should do and those are all really valid questions but i think all of that needs to be backed up with greater explanation of the technology itself because then actually once i think people really understand that it's what kind of systems are sitting behind things because so many things already have machine learning or they have these kind of rpa rules-based systems it's a continuum it's not something that either has ai or it doesn't everything is 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 a continuum and and actually it's more about assessing well how do i want my my data to be used and my my personal feeling is i think maybe um yeah I, i like it when things work maybe i'm a bit of a millennial i get impatient so i'm happy giving my data to services where i think yep they're going to use this to make my life better and maybe i, I have actually been wondering whether i need to reconsider this because i am pretty liberal with what i give away at the moment but maybe i think i think the way i will approach it is actually starting to get under the hood of yeah do i do i like the company and for me that's quite a personal thing like do i do i do i think they treat their staff well because i always think if they treat their staff well they probably will treat their users well those kind of things and fascinating it's really human brand becomes this yeah i mean brand's always been important for lots of reasons but i think one of the reasons that brand becomes so important is evolving which is this the lifeblood of these businesses is data and their ability to harvest it and if you don't like the company, you're probably not going to give them your data willingly. And that's a big deal, right? Exactly. And I think I'm becoming more wary of ad-based businesses because, like, for instance, on Facebook, it has always bothered me how crude their targeting is yeah. of ads to me. And, like, basically, it's I get... Crass a lot it's really crass. Like, I basically get wedding dresses and fertility. Those are the two topics that apparently I'm interested in. Um, and I find that annoying. But I think now it's actually, if I think about the gosh, what might the implications of that be? I can see that it must be reinforcing certain things, I think. Stereotypes. Exactly. And I think, actually, do I... They could at least do those two adverts sequentially, couldn't they? Exactly, exactly. (laughs) To just reinforce the really traditional 1950s stereotypes. That and dieting as well. It's it's literally, that's what my Facebook feed is. It's terrible. But, and it actually makes me think, "Mm, do I want to engage with services that I know all their revenue is based upon ads? Because, yeah, I'm I'm the product and that does bother me. Um, So I think it's, yeah, working out how does that company make its money Mm. and if they're making it from sort of selling your behavior but then interest actually spotify on this last year they released something called they they call it spotify for brands because they say that music is a proxy for behavior so how we listen to music it tells you a lot about how you're feeling whether you're out for a run or not It, it essentially they they know how you're feeling and what you're doing and therefore what you're receptive to from an advertising perspective so they now have a whole arm uh, of their company set up for that and i think it's something like half their users or something is still on the free plan um so i think we're seeing it in lots of different services but i know on spotify i pay each month so i'm not i'm not exposed to that mm-hmm. and actually therefore my data is just being used to improve my experience and i am totally cool with that 
Yeah, I mean, we've started using the um, advertising on Spotify. We're part of the beta program and um, and we're using it to help people participate in charity events. Oh, amazing. Um, and so I suppose because we hopefully can sense when someone might be doing a run or something. Yeah. And, and so that's that those hopefully there are some positive uses to that sort of uh, technology. Well, exactly. And that's the thing. And advertising in itself is not always bad because I, I would rather see ads that are relevant to me. And actually, if yeah. they know the type of music I listen to, then they're likely to know things about, you know, my generation and all these where I live all this kind of stuff and I'm I'm happy with those ads being targeted I think it's that it's that thing we're all uncomfortable with that and we know that what we interact with every day affects how we think about things but just that feeling that on a micro level it's being done yeah and the eternal quest of advertising as an industry is to get personalization right because any ad man or woman you talk to will say if the ad is properly targeted you won't resent seeing it. Actually, yep. you'll probably enjoy it in many yep. cases or and find it useful and, and ultimately purchase the thing. Right? And they'll spend less on advertising. Exactly. So so wins. It's, it's, it's a self-fulfilling circle. And I think the technology may eventually get us there, but we're in this weird place now where the targeting is broadly still quite crude. Yeah. And, and therefore, it's almost worse than just seeing unrelated ads. I, I always think, like, I'd rather see an ad for, like, a holiday to, I don't know, Kuala Lumpur or somewhere I'm not you know, something I'm not in the market for than some like badly targeted advert. Like, oh, you're of an age where you must be having children. Here's a nappy advert. I don't know. Like- well, got, and even sort of retargeting is pretty crude. So, you know, you've, yeah. you've looked at a shed on a shed website and then sheds follow you around the internet for yeah. the next two weeks. And it's like, I, I've bought the shed. I, I needed, shed is done. I needed a gardening video for a meme I was making for somebody. It's a bit of a tangent. But YouTube now decided I'm in the market for gardening and is now constantly serving me gardening videos, which... You're Amazing. getting to that time in life, though, and you live in Richmond. <laughs> well, so. it's obviously you, you being compounded. <laughs> Maybe I'm sure of, um, I'm sure Zuckerberg's listening, and I'll now be getting shed ads on the way home. For me, there's a, there's at least two good things that have come out of this whole scandal, though, and one is the memes of Zuck have been excellent. Yeah, of the Zuck highest order. Data is great. <laughs> um, <laughs> the robot one's great, where he turns on the smile. Have you seen that one? I don't know if I have actually. I'll get that one out every day. Um, and then the other thing is, of course, it just pushes this stuff up the agenda and, and into the sort of wider consciousness. Um, yeah. And so I think it's like, it's good on a couple of levels. It gives us more internet of, of just the stuff that the internet's great well, at. I also yeah. think it actually, it takes things away from being futuristic because at the end of the day, it's... It's a human question. There's there's always been different technologies and new things coming out in the human history. And it's just about how people are using them. And it's whether or not we are comfortable with how they're being used when they affect us. Yeah, I think when it all comes together in a week where, you know, you you, you sort of lose some Martin Sorrell at the top of WPP, who, you know, yeah. generally struggling with getting ready for the digital era, era. We're in the next sort of generation of technology after that. And and then a few scandals. And, and, and actually, you do feel, as you sort of say the whole world is actually moving into a new era. Yeah. Exciting. Tell us a bit more about your company and your plans. So, yeah, we're Feed Forward. And as I mentioned earlier on, it's our whole mission is to bring together these these different worlds of what what is being researched and developed in in AI and actually making that really relevant to to businesses. So there's a few things that we've been doing. I think you attended our event a couple of months ago. Thank you very much. Innovation AI. And so with this, we always have two speakers. We have someone actually from the research community. So we uh, in that first one, we have Professor Stephen Emmett, who used to be head of computational science 
clients at Microsoft and has now left to set up an asset management company applying his techniques to the world of asset management. It was management. really very impressive, that talk. It, it, yeah, quite mind-blowing. Lots of it was. Yeah, so he, he basically, and I'm going to sum this up horribly, I'm sure, he managed to um, model biological processes and then get predictive about them. So biology, obviously, very complicated, so therefore some very impressive modeling going on there and he's going to apply that to markets and he cool. he did a good there was a good visualization mm. video of it and i so i asked a question on the night and the question i asked was uh, what's the minimum investment because I'm, <laughs> oh, pre- I'm pretty confident <laughs> in his fund i'm, I'm like I'm, I'm in <laughs> great question How, what did he say he said he hadn't i don't think he actually thought about it but it's no. maybe because he's an academic he yeah. hadn't thought about the marketing side of like actually getting customers i don't know if that's he needed yeah. you to translate the academia Absolutely. into business. Always. So I'll yeah, we had him and then we had uh, a great guy called Prash, who's CTO of a company called Growth Intel, and they're using machine learning and B2B marketing. And that's kind of, and we're going to do more of these, or you'll have someone from the research, someone from business. And it's just about getting essentially an audience of people who aren't developers. Uh, probably some people do work in tech, but just, and not and also not patronizing people. Like the aim is actually everyone should go away with a better understanding of the underlying tech. So we say to our speakers, yes, you don't need to talk about equations, but do do actually kind of explain the technology. So uh, yeah, we've been ho- holding those events and we've, we've uh, been working also with a couple of interesting clients, hopefully, which I can say more about at some point in the future. But then the exciting thing is we're doing this consulting work, which is always bespoke and based upon what clients need but at the same time our our plan is actually become a kind of solution and product studio so um, we want to have some ready-made things out there that people can engage with that we know solve particular problems Um, and to that end we've just partnering at the moment with an amazing company who I describe as they're basically like German deep mind who haven't yet been bought by Google doing some really quite amazing sciencey wow. spacey stuff around energy and aviation and health and stuff. So yeah, hopefully again I can talk about more of that in the future. Um, so super excited about that. And again, like our role is is translating that into market ready stuff essentially. So watch this space. Um, watch this space. And then on the creative side, and as I say, this is our this is our kind of love. Uh, so both, yeah, both my co-founder and I are musicians at heart. And so we really wanted to come up with something for, for the creative industry, which is what led us to release Figaro last week at this very cool event called Music Connected. And as I say, yeah, that for us, it, it's all about just improving the search experience. And so actually it's, it's something that's really user-focused in a way the the music is it's not all about the music it's actually about enabling anyone who comes to a platform with lots of music on it uh, whatever their use case is to actually help them get to what they want more quickly um, and as I say we do that with by using deep learning and creating this connection between the data and the audio itself so we're speaking at the moment to uh, platforms who basically anyone who has a lot of audio so whether that's labels or stock audio sites those kind of things so it's a b2b solution so we're super excited to have that and uh, but again this is where it's bespoke because actually what it is really Really, is mm-hmm. it's kind of it, it's a it's a framework, it's a solution. We then go in and, and train our systems on the client's data. Mm-hmm. So actually, what it can do and the outcomes are still specific to that client, and that's kind of the beauty of machine learning. It's actually we we go in and we do the learning on site. So yeah. So what I'm what hearing is, if you've got loads of data <laughs> yeah. and you're not quite sure what the value of it might be, 
Give feed forward a call. Yeah, um, basically, we we really we like to talk. So when we, our approach to uh, especially first conversations is we we like to turn up in the room, as I say, with different types of people present. Yeah. So we work in very kind of multi multidisciplinary teams. So you always get someone on the on the kind of business side uh, who who is very used to that way of working and is all familiar with the kind of agile approach. And then we have someone from the actual research side who really knows the maths and the algorithms, and also then the kind of data science people and that's all that kind of architecture and tech and build and actually with the combination of those three skills we can have a very well-rounded conversation um, with whoever we're, we're speaking to because yeah we just find you you need the people who really understand the users and the product but you also need to get onto quite techie conversations quite quickly because if the data is not there and um, it's not available then you, there's not a lot you can do so I've got another sort of question that's sort of related to the, um, the the world of machine learning and perhaps deep learning a little bit and it becoming accessible to a broader audience. So not like a completely consumer audience, but maybe a sort of more general technology audience. Yeah. Um, and um, Amazon are about to launch AWS DeepLens, which is a, a deep learning video camera for $250. And people like TensorFlow have just rec- released a JavaScript library. So it feels like some of the tech is getting more to a place where people with existing web development skills can sort of start to participate yeah so i've been talking to my uh, co-founder about this uh, trying to get his take on it and essentially yes and i think that's a brilliant development and i think the more people who can use this technology for whatever whatever projects and work they've got going on is only a good thing i think so this is this is yeah this this is kevin's take on it is that actually still it it is it will still be the case that you the, the real expertise is in tailoring models to specific use cases and those the models that are available um, in something like TensorFlow or I think Microsoft have now got studios it's a bit like IBM Watson they're good for specific things but then it again it's not AI it's not a sentient thing it's not going to work for everything and so actually we're a really long way off that and actually I think he thinks it's not going to be possible in the foreseeable future to have this really generalized democratized access to machine learning so yeah by all means i think there's there's some really good tools out there and there's kind of data handling platforms as well which are really helpful for that really long laborious boring bit at the beginning and they're all all great but they're good for specific things and you you may well find that in whatever project or or situation you've got if you want the optimal results you're not going to find that off the shelf somewhere and and again yeah the kind of real amazing expertise i see from the academic community, it'll be taking a paper, which is really specific and, you know, very 25 pages of equations, but it'll have been applied to one field. And actually what what then people are very good at doing um, in that world is understanding that its application there could be taken to a completely different scenario and have a certain effect. And then they're able to tailor that um, research to, to that use case. And that's where the kind of real expertise and the amazing results come about. So yeah, I think democratization is a, is a great thing, but I don't think we're there yet in terms of it being general. Awesome. Thank you so much. Lydia, it's been such a pleasure having you with us in the studio. Lots for our listeners to think about in the field of AI. I think the thing I've taken away is give the experts a call, particularly if you've got loads of data. In this case, that would be FeedForward. So uh, they're at FeedForwardAI on Twitter. And their event, Innovation AI, is that we talked about, is open to all. And I understand you run it on Meetup, uh, we do, the, the, yes. the event website. So keep an eye out for that. Do get in touch with Lydia directly if you're interested to hear more about that and you'd like to go along. Any final thoughts, Jim? No, it's just been a really fascinating conversation. Uh, and uh, yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me.